Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, where we discuss the ideas, people, and events that have made America what it is today. We believe that by understanding our history and our principles, we can better live up to the promise of the American founding and preserve our ongoing experiment in self-government. Welcome to The American Idea. I want to welcome everyone to this episode of The American Idea. Today we're going to be talking about a topic that's as old as our republic um, and maybe has been controversial since the very beginning of the republic. And I think it's incredibly applicable to our contemporary day and age. And that's the topic of political parties. Are they good for our political society? Are they bad for our political society? Are they a necessary evil or some good thing or somewhere in between. And for that conversation, we're going to be talking today with an old friend of mine personally, an old friend of the Ashbrook Center, Professor Eric Sands. Um, Professor Sands teaches politics at Berry College in Georgia. He has been there a number of years teaching the U.S. Constitution, American politics, political thought. He also uh, has is a beloved teacher for Ashbrook in our programs for teachers. Uh, he teaches in our Master of Arts in American History and Government program, and also in our Teaching American History seminars on topics like uh, American politics and the U.S. Constitution. And I have to say, I got to plug his book. It's absolutely fantastic. Eric edited a volume for Ashbrook in our core documents series on political parties. So we have got with us today, ladies and gentlemen, a real expert uh, in the best sense of the word on the topic of political parties. Eric Sands, thanks for taking the time to join us today on The American Idea. Oh, very glad to be here. Um, political parties, they're in the news pretty much every day. There's some Democrat or some Republican saying something that gets the attention of a lot of people around the country. Take us back to the American founding and the place or role that was expected or not expected of political parties by our founders. Yeah, well, actually, uh, that's simple. Uh, the founders wanted a nonpartisan political system. Uh, they did not want political parties to be involved in American constitutional government at all. Uh, they were deeply mistrustful of parties. Um, Madison and many of the other founders considered them to be factions. Uh, when you read Federalist 10, you notice that party and faction are used interchangeably. Uh, and party is used something like 13, 14 times in the essay. Uh, so, you know, the, the two are clearly the same in his mind. Um, some of this is is drawn from the British party experience and the extreme amount of animosity that existed between the Tories and the Whigs. Uh, and so for a lot of the founders, they didn't want to incorporate um, that level of tension into American politics. So they thought it better to leave parties out. Uh, but there were other reasons as well. Uh, they were concerned about parties interfering with the separation of powers. Um, so if you have unified government, 
so a Congress being controlled by Democrats and a president who is a Democrat, is the president going to use the veto power um, to check Congress? Or is he just going to go along with what Congress is doing out of loyalty to party? Uh, and certainly there has been some empirical evidence that in unified government over the last 25, 30 years, uh, incumbent presidents in those instances tend not to use the veto very much uh, when their party is in power. Um, now, there may be other reasons for that uh, as well, but uh, there's at least something uh, to the, the, the concern. So let me ask then about that point that you make about the American founders being distrustful of parties. Yeah. Um, uh, certainly, I'm thinking of Washington and even his farewell address where he talks about the need for unity in the nation and a, and a coherent union and warns about the spirit of, of sort of party factiousness, um, which he experienced in his own cabinet with people like Alexander Hamilton versus Thomas Jefferson. But at the same time, isn't it true that not long after the Constitution is formed, starting in the 1790s, people like James Madison, who had written about factions in Federalist 10, then start forming political parties, yeah. like the Democratic Republicans and like the Federalists. Yeah, so you know the, the government effectively begins in 1789. Um, by 1793, we've got a rudimentary party system in place. So we lasted a lot, whopping four years um, without political parties. <laughs> so why is that? That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, you know, considering how many of these actors are so anti-party, um, it 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 really does stand out as being. Uh, how did this happen? I think the best answer we can give to that is that Republican government doesn't work without political parties. Republican government needs political parties. Well, you have to explain that. That's a really interesting uh, thought. Yeah, so one of the things, for example, the Anti-Federalists complained about uh, was the great distance that would exist between the people's representatives and their constituents. And this concern that the representatives would be representing their own interests instead of the interests of the people. Political parties help to bridge those kinds of gaps in the electorate. They form an essential conduit of communication between the people and those that represent them. And it works both ways. So not only can public opinion inform the elected representatives what the people want, um, the elected representatives also have an effective way of communicating back to those that they represent what they're doing and why they're doing it. And for an age that didn't have mass communication, um, this was a really important thing uh, that all of this be able to, to stay connected to each other. But, you know, an, another example, Congress, how is it supposed to be organized without political parties? Yeah, how would you organize Congress without political parties? <laughs> Um, you know, we really hadn't given much thought to that. Um, everybody knew there'd be committees. Everybody knew that there was going to be a Speaker of the House. Um, but that's not enough um, to organize the legislative body. You need something to actually draw people together and get them to work cooperatively. Uh, political parties step in to fill that void. Um, so uh, a number of things that parties help to, I think, correct in the constitutional system. 
uh, that the founders, this is maybe one area that the founders overlooked um, on political parties or, or maybe didn't get quite right uh, when it came to political parties. So when we're thinking about political parties today, of course, we think about Democrats and Republicans. If you go back to the founding period that you're talking about, did those political parties look and feel like today's political parties? No, they were really parties built around initially personalities. Uh, so the Democratic Republicans were sort of indistinguishable initially from the ideas and the leadership of Thomas Jefferson. And the Federalists were fairly indistinguishable from the leadership and ideas of Alexander Hamilton. Uh, that's going to change a little bit once Adams becomes president. And there's obviously animosity between Hamilton and Adams. Uh, so they're both going to kind of claim the mantle of uh, head of the party. And it's not going to be entirely clear who the Federalists are following behind. But Jefferson, you know, is very clearly in charge of the Democratic Republicans uh, as long as he serves uh, as party leader. Um, so these parties are, are, of course, much smaller. Um, they are uh, bound together, uh, not so much in terms of interest coalitions, but they're more ideological um, than uh, parties later on, um, although parties today have become quite ideological. Um, but uh, the rudiments are all there. Uh, I mean, these parties are are eventually going to emerge into the kind of parties that uh, we'd be very familiar with um, today. And so they would have done things like they would have had a name. We 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 call ourselves the Federalist Party or the Democratic right. Republicans. They would have run campaigns, and you would have yes. campaigned as a Democratic Republican, for example. Yes, at the lower levels. Um, so at the presidential level. Uh, the uh, the president was nominated through the congressional caucus um and so there wasn't really a campaign that was uh, being undertaken for the presidency um but certainly for uh house seats and for governorships and uh state legislative seats and all the yeah, there's active campaigning going on um and between the parties and so then as now did the political parties attack each other Oh, viciously. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I always have to chuckle a little bit when I hear people say that politics has never been as nasty as it is today. And I go, really? Um, so uh, I was reading a newspaper account uh, of, I think it was from 1794, uh, talking about how Democratic Republicans and Federalists, uh, gentlemen would not tip their hats to each other when crossing the street, which of course for us seems like a minor thing, but back then that's the kind of stuff that duels got fought over. Um, you did not cross the street without acknowledging another gentleman with a tip of the hat and you know they're ignoring each other. They won't speak to each other or, or make any sort of acknowledgement. And I think that does capture in a in a rather nice way just how much animosity there is between the parties at this time. Mm. How about as the country moves on historically into the 19th century, um, do parties, do they grow in strength, even if they're not an, originally anticipated under the Constitution? 
Do they start growing in strength? Do they get weaker? What are some important moments in party history over the next century? Well, the most important moment in the 19th century uh, is when Martin Van Buren gets involved after the election of 1824 uh, and assists Andrew Jackson in forming the Democratic Party. Um, the Democrats, they're, they're a different breed of party men um, than we've seen before. Uh, you're talking about career politicians instead of the era of citizen legislators. Uh, you're talking about people who are being elected and making a career out of politics. They have been trained in uh, mass organization. Uh, they're really, really good at rousing public enthusiasm. Um, they're really adept at conducting door-to-door -door canvases uh, and turning out the vote. Um, and this begins the growth of parties from being more local and state organizations to becoming national organizations. And so the, the Democrats are gonna be followed in 1836 by the Whigs. Uh, they're only gonna make it, of course, two decades, um, but they become a national party uh, as well and then are replaced by the Republicans um, who very quickly uh, uh, move from being a sectional party to uh, being a national party. Um, but those- well, Martin Van Buren then is, would you say it's fair to say that Martin Van Buren is the founder of political parties in the United States as we know them? Of the modern two-party system, yes. I, I, I think that's exactly right. Well then, you said that the Whigs went out of business uh after only about two decades what happened to the whig party they they essentially tripped over the slavery issue um they couldn't make up their minds what to do about slavery which i mean is understandable uh given the complexity of slavery at the time uh but the Whigs weren't a sectional party. They were a national party. And so there were Northern Whigs and there were Southern Whigs. So if the Whigs took a pro-slavery position, they were going to alienate Southern Whigs, and that was going to cost them at the polls. Uh, if they took uh, an anti-slavery position, you know, this is going to alienate part of the, the, the party. So the Whigs just didn't take a position. Uh, they just sort of rode the fence. Um, and eventually that was no longer a tenable position. Uh, the Whigs were being pushed by both sides uh, to affirmatively say, we're this or we're this. Um, and when they couldn't do that, uh, they, they imploded uh, and disappeared and were replaced by the Republicans who were unequivocally um, uh, against slavery. Mm. So th that's interesting. At the same time, th did the Democratic Party have these same controversies over slavery or had it come to a position? The Democratic Party largely came to a position of being pro-slavery. Um, uh, but they ended up being divided by the slavery issue as well in 1860. Uh, they actually ran two candidates for the presidency, uh, John Breckinridge, uh, who represented Southern Democrats, and Stephen Douglas, who represented Northern Democrats. And it was that break in the Democratic Party that allowed Lincoln to win in 1860. I, I don't 
think there's any way he could have won um, if it had not been for the fissure uh, that divided the Democrats. So we sometimes think today, if we think of political parties and what they do, you, you're right. You think of pol uh, affiliation, political affiliation for candidates. You think of local people getting involved in their political party. You think of uh, big hoopla at conventions. You think of campaign buttons. You think of music and songs, like all that kind of stuff. Around the time of the Civil War that you're talking about, is that what political parties look like? Oh, yeah. Um I mean, muted a bit during the Civil War, obviously, <laughs> um, but huge, huge torchlight parades in the major cities, you know, involving tens of thousands of people. Um, in 1860, uh, the Republicans had the wide awakes. These were young men who dressed up in military uniforms and led the parades uh, through the cities. Uh, you had people making pilgrimages uh, to the homes of presidential candidates. Uh, at the at the state and local level, you've got candidates making stump speeches. Uh, you've got all kinds of uh, print material coming out from the myriad of newspapers that are being published. Um, and in terms of paraphernalia, uh, some of the stuff that they put out in the uh, in the 19th century is just so much fun to look at. You know, you can go on eBay and actually look at some of this stuff, but lanterns and kids' train whistles and stained glass windows with Sherman um, and Grant. Um, wow, so you could decorate your home and get your kids toys with your political yeah. <laughs> my, my favorite was a Henry Clay clock uh, that you could get. It's a mantle clock uh, that you put up there. China um, that you could get with the nominees uh, port, you know, pictures on it and stuff. Um, and, you know, people actually bought this stuff. Um, you know, they would buy it and display it in their homes as a way of telling other people who their party loyalties were to. And that's that's remarkable because most people today are pretty uncomfortable just wearing the pins. Um, right. Right. <laughs> so so let me ask you then, after the Civil War, it does seem like, I mean, those are the two political parties, Democrats and Republicans, that we still have today as the main two political parties. And I think it's really interesting. I've, and I've often wondered, how is it that those two parties have persisted when up to from, you know, 1789 that you mentioned up to 18, you know, in the 1850s, Political parties kind of came and went, and there were m different numbers of them, including the collapse of the Whigs. But now it seems like we've had a really stable two-party political system ever since the Civil War. Is that right, or am I missing something? No, I, I think that's right. Um, you know, to use a phrase from the recession uh, in, in about 2007, uh, I think they were too big to fail. Um <laughs> They, they just became such massive organizations. Challenging the parties was extraordinarily difficult. Uh, to try to unseat, you know, one of the existing parties, I, I, it just even in the imagination, I'm not really sure how you could do it. Um, you're, you're talking about organizations with millions of members, huge coffers, access to the patronage, um, just all of these advantages that they have at their disposal. 
Um, so, I mean, you you get the populists, you get the progressives, you, you know, you, you do get some of these third party movements that are going to come forward, but none of them are really able to challenge the status quo significantly. Um, they're, they're just too powerful. Before we continue with our conversation, I'd like to have one of our faculty members tell you about a special documents-based graduate program for teachers of American history, government, and civics. Hi, this is John Moser, Chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program at Ashland University. If you are an educator who teaches U.S. history, government, or politics, our program may be just what you've been looking for. Our approach is to emphasize primary sources, since we think the best way to study the past is to read the words of those who lived it. We have a distinguished faculty made up of professors from both Ashland University and from colleges and universities across the country. And they're not there to lecture to you. We think it's better to learn through conversation about the documents. Ours is a hybrid program with two different types of seminar. The first are our week-long intensive in-person courses during the summers on the beautiful campus of Ashland University. The second are our live synchronous online seminars offered throughout the year. So if you're a social studies teacher and you're looking to deepen your understanding of America's past and its politics, please check out the Master of Arts in American History and Government program. You can do that by visiting tah.org slash programs. So what's interesting to me is, though, even though you have that, you're right, that stable system and you have challenges even from like, from let's call it the left. I'm not sure that's correct, but the populists, the progressives, even the Socialist Party in the early 20th century, the Democratic Party maintains itself. The Republican Party maintains itself. And so we have this what looks like an unbroken sort of thread all the way from the Civil War to now. But it is also interesting to me that the groups inside political parties have shifted so that before, if you were this kind of person or this kind of had this political beliefs or this interest, you might have been a Democrat. Now you're a Republican and vice versa. Can How did that shift begin to take place? Um, well, we have to remember that parties are coalitions. Um, you know, really at their core, they're coalitions of interests. And you hold on to those interests as long as the party is able to serve them. Um, but when you have new groups that join the political party, um, the party may have to make decisions about which of two groups it's going to serve. And in serving one group, they may end up alienating another group that ends up leaving and going to the other political party at that point. I think the perfect illustration of this is black voters in the 20th century migrating from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party. But once they did, white Southerners said, well, now we're not being catered to. Um, so we're going to migrate from the Democratic Party over to the Republican Party. Um, and there's been many instances of, of these kinds of defections that have gone on. Some have been dramatic. You know, it can be an election cycle uh, where you have large numbers of voters that end up switching parties. Some of them are slower um, and happen over a period of decades where you just have a, a slow shift uh, that goes on um, and, and, you know, they, they work their way over. Um, but yeah, I think the important thing to remember is is that we're talking about these interests that dominate the parties. And yeah, and I'm, I'm thinking, I'm, of course, I'm here in North Central Ohio, 
And I'm thinking of Ohio, uh, in, like, an example of that, you know, working class voters in Ohio who had traditionally up until the 2010s probably had been a largely dem voter democratic, but then uh, have switched in recent years to largely voting Republican in many places in the state of Ohio. Is, th yeah. is that the kind of shift that you're talking about? Exactly. Um, and, and again, it says different groups of voters analyze um, how their interests are being served uh, by the parties and what kinds of overtures the opposite party is making to them uh, to come over and, and bring their allegiance over to the other side. Um, so we've it, that's not just Ohio, too. We've seen that across the country that working class voters now vote predominantly Republican. That is a real shift because working class voters were a huge part of the Democratic coalition for decades in the 20th century. Um, but they've lost a, a lot of those voters who feel like they've been left behind and that uh, the Democratic Party is catering to other groups more than to their their interests. It's, it is true, of course, that um political parties always have a platform, or at least they say they have a platform, a, a list of policies they want to pursue, what their fundamental principles and values are. In the last several decades, how important have party platforms been in shaping the parties? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> um First of all, nobody reads the platforms anymore, um, and for good reason. They're unwieldy. Um, you know, they are hundreds of pages long, uh, and they're basically written by special interest groups. Uh, so it's just this laundry list of wishes and wants um, that the special interests want to get out of the party uh, if elected. Presidents typically don't even pledge themselves to the platform anymore. Um, and even if they do, they certainly don't feel bound by the platform anymore. Um, so, you know, it, it's it's not constraining presidents in any meaningful way. Um, it doesn't really seem to have a constraining effect on members of Congress. So there is kind of a question today about what exactly are they doing uh what purpose does it serve other other than to perhaps make a statement about unifying principles and policies um that define the party well uh, it's interesting you say that because i was having a conversation uh i had a conversation earlier episode of the american idea with professor joe postel of hillsdale college and we were talking about the race for the speaker uh, of the house of representatives and he was talking about i raised the question to him does the diff the difficulty in selecting of the Republican Party uh, in selecting a speaker, ultimately, of course, they have settled on a speaker, but um, does that difficulty suggest there's a problem with the contemporary Republican Party? Or is there a problem with contemporary political parties uh, more broadly? And his answer was both, but in particular, he said political parties have become very weak. And so you might have a lot of partisan identification, but the actual political party is very weak. And so there isn't a Republican position, for example, on who should be who should have been Speaker of the House. Do you agree with that assessment that political parties have gotten weaker in the last decades? 
Absolutely. Um, I, I don't think there's any question that they've gotten weaker. Um, and, you know, it's it's kind of a weird thing because in terms of size, you know, at the national level, they've actually grown. They they probably have more resources today than ever before. Um, so it's, it's not a money problem. <laughs> um, but to me, it's it's really about authentic connection to voters. And th this is where political parties have become profoundly weak. Um, voters just don't have meaningful relationships with parties anymore. So you're right, uh, a, a lot of people identify with parties. Um, in fact, we've seen party identification go up in the past decade, um, but it's the quality of that identification. It's that sense of, you know, it's the difference between somebody saying, I vote Republican and I am a Republican. Oh, and that's interesting. Say a little it, bit more about that. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, the sense that my party defines my political identity and that my orientation to politics is defined through my party identity. Uh, and that's the way things were in the 19th century. You know, everybody had a party ID. Um, everybody, you know, related to politics through the lens of party. You know, parties largely structured the vote. We we didn't have issue-based voting. We didn't have, you know, candidate-centered voting and stuff. You You voted based on what party you were affiliated with. Um, and that's the kind of authentic connection that um, that people had with parties that we just don't have today. Um, and so when you get those polls that come out that actors in Washington are really divorced from, you know, the, the desires and needs of their constituents, you know, that's one of the things that we talk about with that is, you know, with stronger parties, they probably wouldn't be so disaffected. Uh, they'd be a lot stronger. So do you have a sense, Eric, of uh, you've studied political parties a lot, obviously. Do you have a sense of one or two things that could be done if, if it's a good idea to make political parties stronger? One or two things that could be done to help that happen? Um, to me, the biggest thing is give them more control over candidate selection. Um, and that means getting rid of primaries. Um, uh, primaries have primaries to me are one of the major reasons that the Republican Party is in bad shape right now. Um, because, uh, the, the Republicans are so internally divided because of that primary process. Um, and the fear that so many Republicans have of being primaried, uh, you know, the, this phenomenon of, of running candidates against them in the nomination process uh, and getting them voted out at that stage uh, so that they, they can't win their seats back. Um, I would much rather see us go back to the caucus convention system where the parties themselves make internal determinations of who the candidates and nominees are going to be uh, and give them more centralized control uh, over who's going to represent them in government and who's going to represent them in the electorate. Interesting. So that even, uh, or, or, and it certainly does seem true that even where there are primaries, 
it's become much easier for anybody to vote, for example, in the Republican primary or the Democratic Party. You don't have to be a card-carrying party member sort of person. That's exactly right. Um, and, you know, the the people who show up for primaries tend to be your most ideological, most extreme voters. Um, and, you know, so in, in the Republican Party right now, you've got Trump supporters, those are the ones that are showing up for primaries. Um, you've got, uh, you know, a, another group of voters who are, aren't necessarily unified on who they want as an alternative to Trump, but they're not showing up for primaries. Um, and, you know, what happens is the party can end up being ha getting a candidate that's forced on them um that they didn't select and they didn't want and in fact was selected by a minority of the party um but because people aren't turning out and people aren't getting to the polls republicans end up getting stuck with it and there's nothing they can do about it is is the situation with this uh, contemporary state of the parties is it uh similar with democrats and republicans do they have these uneasy coalitions of groups within them, for example, in the Democratic Party, and they are somehow being held together? Um, because it does seem, at least you look at contemporary politics, there does seem to be more division among Republicans than among Democrats. I think, yeah. I'm think i thinking of the old Will Rogers saying, or at least attributed him, I don't belong to an organized political party, I'm a Democrat. Um, <laughs> that doesn't seem to be quite so true today, or uh, am I misreading it? No, I, I think that's true. We we know we know both parties have become more ideological, um, but I think with Republicans, you have multiple ideologies um, in play. Uh, so you've 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 got a conservative ideology, and you have a populist ideology, and they're who are clashing right now. Whereas in the Democratic Party, you basically just have a progressive ideology, and it's very strong and has kept Democrats pretty united uh, throughout all of this. So there's not nearly the defection rate uh, that we're seeing, just a few people on the margins um, that have you know, sort of come out of the woodwork and said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold up things here um, if, if I don't get what I want. Well, so given the current state of the political parties and the the trends that you've been you've talked about, which seem to be the the growing weakness of political parties, uh, you're a political scientist. I'm always hesitate to ask people to prognosticate, but <laughs> if you had to think about the future of the political parties in the United States over the next few decades, what's it going to be? I think the near future is not going to be a pretty picture. I think parties are going to continue to weaken. Um, I think they're going to continue. Uh, people are going to become increasingly uh, dissatisfied with parties. Uh, I suspect we're going to uh, see an increase in independent voters uh, and people who don't want to identify with the parties. I mean, Lord knows when I go into my parties class, you know, the first question I ask is, what's wrong with political parties today? And I mean, we spend two hours <laughs> with everybody giving me a laundry list of all these things that are wrong with parties. And I, I think that's the perception of a lot of people, uh, is that parties are irredeemably broken and they just can't 
function in a positive way in American politics anymore. So if parties are going to reform, if parties are going to get better, they've really got to start with rehabilitating their image in the eyes of Americans and restoring lost faith um, that Americans have uh, in parties and in the political process. If Why does it matter? Uh, go back to the very beginning. Why does that matter for the future health of the republic? Um, because parties perform really essential and important roles in American politics. Ones that I don't think most people realize, uh, you know, that we're, we're kind of oblivious to for the most part. Um, but, you know, they give channels, you know, that ordinary citizens can affect the government. Um, they give political leaders reliable basis of support. Uh, they uh, keep each other honest, you know, their their checks on each other. <laughs> which, you know, is is an important thing in politics as well. They perform many of the chores of democracy. Uh, so turning out the vote, informing voters, you know, increasing political participation. Um, I think they're also important conduits of promoting civic virtue, uh, something that is, I think, very critical for the health of a republic. So, you know, anybody who complains about voter turnout in America right now you know, my answer to that is revitalize political parties, because when political parties were in charge of getting voters to the polls, turnout was 80 percent. Wow. And those are staggering numbers. <laughs> well, we'll see um, what the future has here in an election year in 2024 and whether we'll see any revitalization of the political parties. Uh, yes, I can hope. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you, I'm sure you will, Eric. <laughs> Thank you so much for what an interesting uh, historical and contemporary and insightful conversation. Eric Sands, thanks as always for taking the time to join us on The American Idea. Oh yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.